Welcome to the Talking Story Podcast. We'll be your hosts for season one. I'm Lorenzo Roel Flores Please. I'm Ezra Kikaway Cook. And I'm Oceana Sawyer. In this space, as people of the global majority, we reflect on our experiences living here in Jefferson County, a semi-rural region of the Olympic Peninsula, which is primarily white folks. This is us talking to us about us for us. Welcome to this episode where we're talking about shifting the narrative for PGM youth. Today, we're talking to Daryl Thomas and Melissa O'Neill. Let me first introduce you all to my friend, Daryl Thomas. Daryl has a Bachelor's of Science in Criminal Justice and Human Services, as well as an Associate's of Science in Business Administration from Colorado Technical University. Daryl has worked with youth for over 10 years. Some of his experience includes working with youth experiencing homelessness, youth in the juvenile justice system, youth in foster care, and tribal welfare. Among other things, he is a restorative practitioner with the ability to facilitate circles and mediations, and a hip-hop artist who brings a positive message to encourage and uplift the morale of people. Finally, Daryl has been our high school BIPOC student union's fearless leader, and if you meet him on the basketball court, you'll see that he's got a mean long-range jumper. And now, I'm going to introduce you to my friend, Melissa O'Neill. Melissa is a mom, a writer, and an activist who has spent the last 20 years focusing on social justice, racial equity, and environmental protection. She lives right here in Port Townsend with her family and all of us. And I just have to say, if you have ever had the honor of receiving one of Melissa's hugs, I am sure you will agree with me that it is one of the most yummiest things in this world. I just want to thank both of you guys for this conversation. Because honestly, the work that you're doing in schools is like, it's so seminal, I think, how we as a community of people of the global majority are going to figure out a way to make it forward in the world. And a lot of the way we do that starts with the kids. And the way you guys are interceding for our kids, interceding in a white supremacist, capitalistic system to make sure they get through it whole and sane is just incredible. And so I'm just really glad to have this conversation with you. How did you come to this work? Who are you and how do you come to this work? And how do you stay resourced while you're doing this work? It's kind of the basic thing of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I appreciate you all inviting me here to be able to share my experience and a lot of work to be done. Working in a school, like you have a lot of situations and sometimes you feel like you can't respond to every single thing that comes up, you know, because it's that just shows how much the need is for this work. But, you know, you do what you can and, and you do what is sustainable at the end of the day. That's what you want to do. So thank you for inviting me on this podcast episode. Grateful to be here. So Daryl, what did you really see in uh, Port Townsend when you saw this job offer in the district that really allowed you to say, yes, this is kind of a daunting task going to a school district like this and even the work that you're doing? What really stuck out to me, like I, I didn't even know this job was here. Like I was working for the tribe doing uh, child welfare, very stressful. 
but very necessary uh, to have good people working in our tribes. And I was at the Squamish tribe at that time. I actually had a heart attack at uh, March. It was like last year. It was like about three days before my birthday, something like that. And um, I was going to play basketball and I had a heart attack. I felt the symptoms and I was like, I think this is a heart attack from like doing CPR per se. So I ended up going through that process. It, it was a, a small branch off artery, but nonetheless, it was still concerning my uh, genetic background. It runs in my family. So, um, you know, I was 34 years old. During that time when I was recovering, I had a friend reach out to me about taking a job in another school district. And so we were like negotiating the terms and all this different thing. And this was the direction I was going to go. My uh, former boss had told me about the position opening up in Port Townsend. And for me, I saw this as an opportunity because I wanted to make more systemic change. So the other job would have like, I would have still been working with youth in the school, but I wouldn't have as much influence over like employees or over the practices that the school was implementing. Like it would just be me responsible for my own actions and then responding to the crises that teachers would bring the kids in and whatnot. I've done that for a long time throughout my journey and justice work. And, you know, I felt like it was time for me to embrace the call of leadership. And so I always felt like I was going to be a leader at some point. And I've been running away from that, you know. <laughs> I'm actually an introvert, you know. No, introvert, but I force myself to be extroverted. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I just rather not deal with people. But I've always known, like, since my mom told me when I was young, you're going to be a preacher. I've always known, like, I was going to be a leader in some fashion. And so I saw this as an opportunity to embrace that. And then um, the job description had a lot of different things, some things that I was really good at, some things I had no experience in. I have to just pause you on two things. Yes, yeah. Two things. Okay. I don't know if you saw our faces. Can we talk about just take a, a beat on this piece around the impact of living in our bodies in this system? I mean, you having a heart attack is like not even unusual. Mm-hmm. The fact that we didn't know it is like a little bit. Well, but, unusual. But, but, but on the other hand, how could we not? You know, like I have high blood pressure and I have rheumatoid arthritis. I mean, we could probably go around the table and talk about our, our ailments. But I'm curious about how in that moment, what were the thoughts that were going through your mind around how this was happening, why this was happening, and what are the opportunities out of that kind of a, a physical catastrophic event? And then if you have any any other thoughts around what you've seen around the physical impact of racism on our bodies. You know, when I experienced it, I was still able to function. So, like, it's crazy because, like, whenever you have emergency situations, like, I'm thinking of, like, the cost that I've endured, you know, from ambulance rides to, you know, all these different things. And so, like, I'll try to drive myself to the air. Oh, no. And so, you know, thinking of things like that, right? <laughs> you know, that's like a reality for 
And so I ended up driving myself to, it was a fire department. And so they just came out and checked me, told me that I still needed to go into the hospital, even though it was clear at that point. But like, you know, going through that process, it was very real for me because my pops, we just saw him in 2021. He had a heart attack before, but he went under surgery, he had a stroke, and then now he's paralyzed with him. You know, he's mm-hmm. 64 years old. And so, uh, yeah. yeah, my grandfather, he, he had a stroke, he passed away. So it was, it was just one of those things where it's like, I don't want to go early, you know, and, and I got young kids, you know, that I still want to father and break, you know, that cycle of where I can be in my kid's life and really impact them in a positive way. So, yeah, I mean, I, I broke down crying, you know, because it was like, I don't want to go early. But it was a wake-up call to, like, changing some things and being more cognizant of how I'm eating, how I'm taking care of my body and all of those different things. And so, so yeah, that, that was what I was going through that time. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for surviving. Yeah. I've had some close calls, you know, but this one's definitely a close call. Okay, I'm going to come back to your introversion, but I want to go over here to Miss Melissa, who's also an introvert, by the way. <laughs> we extrovert well, I think. It is the style of introverts to <laughs> learn how to extrovert. Otherwise, we are not going to make it. <laughs> okay, now you have to tell that story. Now, you were a big part in getting Daryl into... I wasn't a big part in getting him into the position, but what I realized is that we knew each other from, he did some, some circles after George Floyd with city council, Port Townsend city council and city manager, and just invited people in. He held that space really beautifully. But I knew when he was applying for the job, I knew that he needed to be well-resourced in his town. And that as a Black woman, I was like, you know, and I know I've done a little bit of equity work with the schools. So I helped facilitate some conversations around equity, which was really interesting. <clears throat> That's a word for it. Um, and so I knew what he was a little bit what he was getting into, and I didn't want him to be on an island. One, I wanted him to do this position, but he asked a question during his interview, essentially like, this is great for you all, but can you hold me? So I think that that question still stands. Can Port Townsend School District hold him? And I, I still don't know the answer, but I keep showing up because I want to help hold him. First of all, let me just say, brilliant question. <laughs> I remember that. No, no, I'm in an interview situation. But uh, what does that holding look like? I mean, I know that you're doing some of that. And what does that look like? And the reason I'm asking is because I feel like we need to have more. We don't need anything, but it would be good for us to have more models of how we support each other. Mm-hmm. So what are the, how does that holding look for you? I just show up for him. You know, we have lots of conversations. We have lots of check-ins, like these informal debriefs on his drive home. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I'm going to pull over because this is going to take some But I think that just having a sounding board for somebody else who is in this community that knows some of what he's dealing with, I think it's not, but I just keep showing up. It's what I do for kids, too. I mean, like, I just think that that model of what would I have wanted when I was a kid, a small town, that's predominantly white. So I show up, and he shows up every damn day for those kids. You know, the least I can do is show up for him. Mm-hmm. 
It sounds like talking to the two of you. To do this work, you need a buddy. Uh -huh. What you need is a whole community of buddies. But I, I think that having even just one other person makes a big difference. Yeah, it's just a lot of times I know what, you know, working in like bureaucracy or, you know, systems and stuff like that. Like, like I usually know what to do in situations. There's sometimes where I have to get coaching from people that have more experience from me than me. But a lot of it is like, you know, you have to, you got to do a lot of bullshit, you know? And, <laughs> you know, and so it's like, you, you got to uh, have someone to be able to, to share that with. Like, cause I don't want to take that stuff home too. Like, yeah. it's, like, mm -hmm. like it's like, I'm not. It's just like all for me, mm -hmm. you know? Like, if you don't let it out and it explodes, then it's yeah. gonna be a mess. Yeah. yeah. It's like, my time at home with my wife and kids is very valuable. And, you know, there's times where I am able to, like, you know, it's the first thing that happened at work, but I try not to make that the basis of, like, my relationship with my family because mm -hmm. work isn't my life, mm -hmm. it's a part of life. And I, I don't just view this as work. I mean, I do view it as like, we're making a lot of change and such in the district, but yeah, when I get home, I've built up some good boundaries in terms of like, you know, working in, I used to work in the halfway house. I worked with youth and juvenile detentions and juvenile rehabilitation and all secondary trauma. I worked with homeless youth, you know, I've learned like skills over the years of how to manage secondary trauma or having boundaries to where I can still enjoy, you know, my life and knowing that it takes a community and I can't save the world. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's times where I have to let go of things and then let me live my life so that I can have the energy and the capacity yeah. for the next day. Right. Yeah. So this topic of boundaries, I feel like one of the things that we don't really get to cultivate in our black and brown bodies is boundaries. Because under the system of white supremacy, for hundreds of years, white men have had the full unfettered access to the black body. It is only recently that defendants of enslaved people, indigenous people, have had sovereignty over their bodies. It's recent. And so this very idea of boundaries feels like both fundamentally important and new. So new. So new, right? You know, white women be talking all day and night about boundaries and self-care and mobile balance and saying no. How, how have we, are sitting around this table, been in this conversation around boundaries? How have we thought about it? How have we attempted it? How, what have we seen has worked and not worked around boundaries? And how does that play into this work we do with children in these schools? It's one of the conversations I have with my kids who are little. When my daughter, who's now 13, started middle school. We've been homeschooling and been COVID and just lots of kind of bouncing around. And she was starting sixth grade and she was a little nervous. And I was explaining to her, like, the most important thing that you're going to have to navigate is relationships and how to draw some clear boundaries between you and, you know, and, and really figure out, like, how far that boundary is 
like trying to figure out how to navigate relationships and how how you protect yourself, but also how you insulate yourself. And it's been a little messy. <laughs> I think she's figured out what that means a little bit. I'm like, I don't give a shit about your grade. I give a shit about how you treat people and how people treat you and where that threshold is for you. And of course, it's like a lifelong lesson that she's had like a crash course in middle school. Mm. And then I think, you know, for me, I'm like, how do I model what good boundaries are? <laughs> you know, I'm over here like, <laughs> you know, having all my feelings about everything. <laughs> she's like watching and observing and going, ah, I see you, mom. That's quite a mess. <laughs> but I think that it's the trickiest part of like, you know, being a human of humaning is trying to figure out where that line is for yourself, you know? And in this town for people of color and that hyper visibility, mm -hmm. people are like, oh, I want to have proximity to a black or brown person. And so they're like, yeah, I want some of that. And so there's this feeling that like, oh, you know, like I'll have people come up and just, they want to just talk to you <laughs> and, and get in your business. So it's tricky to just like, where are those you know, how do you navigate those boundaries for yourself? Oh, you know, please, that, that that dynamic of yeah. white people coming up to you, like, well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have a right to, oh, chastity here. I'm keeping everything into myself. It's not for your consumption. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, like, I don't want to share on every single thing. I appreciate the fact that, like, voice being included but sometimes it can be too much you know mm -hmm. um, it's like okay i don't need to be in every single situation or every single conversation or every single topic like and so that's like a part of boundaries right yeah. <laughs> uh, for me i kind of break my boundaries up in kind of two to three categories the first one is i think of like control like what do i have control over you know i've worked with a lot of youth and and I think just historically we've we've had a you know internal like responsibility of like being our brother's keeper, right? I've worked with a lot of kids in really bad situations. I mean, uh, you know, even working in the justice system, and some of my youth, one of my youth got out of juvenile rehabilitation and blackmail, had a kid, robbed the store, killed the clerk. You know, things like that. And, and it's like, you know, me thinking of like that generational, like, okay, now we're in this cycle again of like mass incarceration system, right? And then that child growing up without a father. Things like that. And it's like, okay, well, that's out of my control. I can only do what I can do. You know, even though we try to impact individuals' lives, like people still have to make their own decisions. And so that helps me sleep at night. And so that's in terms of like me working with, uh, the youth in the community, and that's that goes, you know, with all of you for it. And as far as like myself working with white people for the most part, I have to value myself. Like my life is most important, and so that's why I say work comes second. And like what I've learned, even since the pandemic started, you know, I really got into finance and investing, and so I have a podcast called The Money Level Show, and I've interviewed multi-millionaires and all types of people, very wealthy people. And pretty much like one thing I've learned is like when you're able to be financially free, 
white people and systems have less control of you. I mean, obviously there's levels to it. I mean, you can be indicted or something or whatever, like and go to prison or whatever. But in the most part, it's like, okay, I can go into my job not fearing that I'm going to get fired or whatnot, like, or not fearing that someone can abuse some form of power, you know, because it's like, okay, well, I've implemented some discipline in like my finance and uh, I've been in positions where I'm working jobs and, you know, people dangling the carrot over you, you know, and it's like, man, I need that carrot. But when you get to the point where it's like, okay, well, I don't need your money. I can go somewhere else, take my talents to South Beach, like LeBron James. You know? <laughs> like, you don't have that type of power. And so even in like working in the district, like there's times like I don't, I don't reveal everything that I'm into, but sometimes I'm coaching some coworkers on like finance and stuff. I'm like, yeah, you know, if you do this, do this, do this. Or like, hey, I'm going to one of my friend's house. He's, his net worth is $100 million. And they're like, what? How did you meet this person? You know, so like stuff like that, I know people that can put me in a you know better position. And so like that helps me with boundaries because I'm able to value myself as most important in my family and then and not allow people to have some type of power over me. Because I mean we we lived through that for a long time, whether you work in a job, like I've worked in, you know, warehouses and all types of stuff where like you just feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel and people aren't valuing you. And so, like, for me now, it's like, okay, if you don't value me, then I can go elsewhere, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's kind of what helps me with boundaries now. Mobility. Mm-hmm. I guess when I think about my boundaries, I'm pretty reserved as a person. I think I only really started, like, I mean, getting to identity now, I only really started to recognize my identity later in life, the past seven years. Mm-hmm. I started to look a little different, started to look well, more mixed and less white. And I kind of preserved that. I stay reserved, most of my friends are white. And when I'm drawing boundaries for myself, kind of going back to what Oceano was saying about always having that voice there, white people trying to have that voice there just for no reason, basically. Like, I want to hear what you have to say. Like, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. I reserve myself from situations like that. And that's why I value these BIPOC events and gatherings so much, because that's where I really feel like I can be myself and open up. The BIPOC Student Union, Daryl runs that <laughs> at the high school. And Melissa runs it at the middle school. And yeah, I mean, I grew up with people trying to touch my hair. I don't really understand why for a long time. Always had some curly hair. Events like that really start making you think later in life. And one of the reasons why I'm so reserved in the communities I'm in. But then I open up when I'm in communities with other BIPOC people. So that's basically my take on um, boundaries. Mm. Yeah, you brought up something around identity. And this came up in our earlier question, right? So maybe you can kick off that part of this conversation around identity. Like, how is that important, especially for our students? I mean, how do you see identity playing out among the students and the staff? And why or why not do you think it's important to kind of uh, interrogate identity Mm -hmm. for both students and the staff? You're working with a lot of mixed kids or different people with different identities. And I think that's very important for younger people in our community. Yes, that's been like a a big piece on my heart doing this work. 
because for me, I have a strong sense of my identity, you know, being born and raised in Oklahoma City and grew up in the black church, grew up going to cookouts, saying fist fights, all that type of stuff, right? You know, uh, <laughs> I grew up in that, you know, and, and it's like for me, like I have a strong sense of identity, like I can call back home and hear some accents, or, you know what I'm saying? Like or, my mom's like her personality and, um, and a lot of our kids, you know, uh, well, some of our kids here don't have that. They don't have that connection to a community. So sometimes, you know, we do have white staff who question, oh, well, you know, by proxy, you mean, I don't even shoot them down for asking a question. Like, I engage with them on the topic. And, you know, and I bring up the facts. Like, well, a lot of our youths don't have a ethnic group, community group here to connect with to help strengthen their identity, you know, or cultural identity. Um, I mean, we do have, we have a growing Latinx community out here, but there's no black community. I mean, I live in Kitsap. They have a Filipino community there. They have, you know, and so like that identity is constantly being reinforced and, and built upon and that doesn't exist here. And so whatever we can do to help our kids with their identity is very important. And when I share the answer, like, I get no pushback. They're like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. And I'm like, yeah, you should. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's been a big piece. And the term, you know, identity and culture can have so many different meanings, different variations. And I don't expect our youth to to be like me, you know, or whatnot. But I do want to instill, like, some some pride or some grit, some self-determination. And like Lorenzo, he was on the BIPOC team. Like, hey, we're doing this. We're going to train the staff here. We're going to, you know, like, <laughs> and just really putting them in a position where their self-esteem and self-efficacy can be built. And so that, that's kind of like how I've been approaching it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we run into a lot is I think the majority of the middle school last year, the kids were mixed, white and something else. And so there's this kind of dance that they do. They're like, okay, well, I'm, do I belong in this bifoc group? Am I black enough? Am I brown enough? Is there enough of that piece of me that I can even be in this group? And I think that there's still a little bit of that happening. And it's not an anti-white group, but there's this discomfort with, you know, they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I should be here. I don't know where I belong, and it's, I think that is pretty common with mixed kids. I mean, I know I've, I've experienced that, is that here, like, am I black enough? Because I know I'm not, I'm not white enough. This kind of being on the boundaries of belonging and having that, like, I've got one leg in in both places, but I don't really belong either place. I watch the kids kind of struggle with that. And then we have a lot of kids of color that are adopted by white families. This transracial adoption stuff is a big deal. And I think that there's lots of well-meaning white parents that don't know how to navigate it and don't know exactly, you know, how to even show up for their kids like that. So it's they anyway. in a community that doesn't have the Right. That there's nobody who looks like them or, you know, or has yeah. their cultural background and they can't even like plug in culturally. I mean, luckily, you know, we've got some bipoxy in but that's not specifically for black culture, you know, that's like all of the people. So it's tricky. And I think like in terms of identity and like trying to figure it out, I still do this dance with myself. And I'm like, I don't think I'm black enough to be in that space. You know, am I black enough to say I'm a black woman? And what does that mean? The answers are 
publicly while I'm coming, but I think that getting out of this podunk little town will be really great. I think like there's trade-offs with that. Like, if, like one of our youth, he's like, yeah, I'm going back to Mexico for a month. I'm like, okay, you're getting some cultural identity. <laughs> you know, like, you feel very connected with that, you know, versus some of our youth that don't have that. Yeah. I think that some kids are adopted to be put in a better situation, like a better, like, mm-hmm. you know, they don't experience abuse anymore. They get to grow up in a community where they can have better education or whatever. But the trade-off is the identity piece, the cultural reinforcement piece. I mean, Lorenzo, he's going to UW. It's like, hey, that's dope. There's not very many. I mean, there's some kids, you know, where I'm from that went out to do things. But I mean, just from the history of racism and such, like it's impacted the community I grew up in a lot. I'm probably out of my friend group. I'm like probably the only person that's been outside the country, right? You know, things like just give a picture of that. Some kids are put in a position where they can like live in a safer community or be able to go to college or whatever that is. Like, I mean, one of our kids, (laughs) I had a a discussion with her and another student about something that student did that was racist, unintentional, but I mean, nonetheless, it it was. You know, I was like, yeah, like this student does not fit stereotypes of black women, right? You know, like a student is in ballet, the student does recital dances and, you know, stuff like that. And I'm just like, yeah, like, and you're trying to paint this picture on a student when there's multiple different identities that black women hold. You know, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's the same, the same type of black woman that you think from what you see on TV. Or yeah. mm-hmm. You know, it feels like in what you all are saying, and I know I have experienced this, I felt a little called out when you were talking about the co-workers who are people of color but are still trying to figure out their identity. Because I had very aspirational parents, a mother, you know. There was Black history taught in the home, books everywhere, every Black history thing we went and did and consumed. But my mother housed us, located us in the best school district in California because she wanted her kids to assimilate and excel in the system. Well, that meant I was surrounded, I mean, most of my life was white people. And so these questions of identity, it's almost like If you don't come from this very narrow, and I appreciate you, and believe me, when you were talking about fist fights and the the Sunday barbecues, I've been there, I've been to all that. But I only got to experience those because my mother, in the summertime, took us back home. These are isolated events I had. I did not live like that, you know, and then I come back to where I live. And so I feel like these this inquiry around identity is so rich right now. Mm-hmm. It's like you don't even have to be anymore. This one narrow picture mm-hmm. of blackness or Mexicanness or Japanese-ness or whatever, you know, you can, the myriad of ways you can be whoever you are or where you choose to locate yourself are many. Mm-hmm. And well, who gets to say, and how do we get to say it? Yeah. Yeah. And can we have some fun with some paintbrushes and say it any kind of way we, you know, we feel like saying it? 
No, there's, there's like evolution, you know. Like yeah, there you we go. Have, we have to like factor that in from us being taken from Africa, you know, having our cultural identity there to adapting here and almost creating a whole new identity in a lot of ways. And then to now we have more access and such. And so like it's looking a lot different now. Someone can move to a better place in society without segregation, without, you know, I mean, obviously it's, you have your dynamics of it, but it's not like explicit like I was, but people can move to receive more opportunity. There's more access available. So like, and I expect identity to keep evolving amongst like black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ooh, okay. That's a whole nother. <laughs> that's a whole nother. Because yeah, now I'm not thinking about Resident Medical Malafe talking about the next iteration of blackness. Yeah. yeah. What are your guys' goals for the future of equity and inclusion at Port Townsend schools and or our broader PGM community? My goal may be different than someone else's, but I think as far as the schools goes, for me, like I've done a lot of work with kids and I've built a lot of relationships. And one common thing that I've noticed is like whenever I leave, that relationship doesn't necessarily get passed on to whoever comes next. And it kind of leaves this void or this hole. And so when I came in this year, my approach was a lot different. Obviously build relationships and connect with kids, but what can last if I move on? So um, some of my goals for this year is like really the policy, nitty gritty work. We've done a lot of trainings on equity, you know, what's racism and such, but now it's like, the practical tools of like, okay, when a student feels like they're experiencing racism or whatever, like how do we respond to that? And so that's kind of where I see like the sustainable policy procedure type work happening. So I'm doing a lot of work with our harassment, intimidation, and bullying policy. I'm building out processes for that. We're starting an anti-bullying club for students. And like for me, Personally and professionally, it's like we have to hold people accountable. And so, you know, we had a situation happen at a school and you know, some girls were physically harmed. And we had some of the students who were white, you know, they were laughing, high-fiving, you know, all this stuff. And I'm just like, come into the office. Let me talk to you. Hey, don't you know this contributes to bullying? So if you keep doing this, I'm writing your name down here. We're going to keep track of you. If you keep antagonizing or if you go around spreading rumors and I hear about it, I'm going to investigate you for harassment, intimidation, and bullying. They weren't expecting that response, <laughs> you know? And so it's when we have these situations of racism, like it's normally just been like brushed off and like not responded to, but like there's policies for a reason. And I think that a lot of times when people don't know policy or it could be, you know, implicit bias or whatnot, they don't want to respond to it. They don't want to do the dirty work. And so for me, it's like, you know, I just this needs to happen. And within those policies, like building out processes for like, how do you investigate bullying? What does that look like? All those different things. And so those are some things I'm working on with bullying, sexual harassment. It's benefit all students, but you know, especially when a student of color is saying like, hey, this person is X, Y, and Z. Like, all right, well, let's actually document this. Sometimes these things aren't even documented and you're like, okay, this happened multiple times and this is the first time me hearing about it. If you don't document it, it didn't happen. 
and that's not for the student that's for the staff right mm -hmm. so things of those natures so it's like you know if we're talking about equity when students say hey who are the most targeted students in the harassment intimidation and bullying people in protected classes whether that be lgbtq or whether that be people of color or people with disability and things like that so part of equity work is having a firm process procedure and response whenever those situations occur so that all of our kids can feel safe and feel like the district got them back. Bring bringing this debate I saw recently around what are the components of sustainability, sustainable change? Is it policy and procedure or is it hearts and minds? Mm -hmm. Where do you fall in that debate? I'm usually a balance. I'm pretty balanced with both, but I know that policy and procedure, if that's not being carried out, that's a liability for a district, like where the lawsuits and all type of stuff can come out of that. Like someone can be held accountable if they don't respond or if they don't acknowledge, you know, that this is happening. It's a lot of risk there. As far as heart and minds, like, I feel like that's more, not necessarily philosophical, I think it's necessary, but then you have less control over that. As far as like, I can't force someone to change their mind or to change their heart about something. I hope that they do in our relationships, but that's not something I can control. I can control, hey, you're bullying this kid and I'm investigating your ass. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, it's kind of like where I fall with that. I'm more about we land people's hearts. <laughs> When I was helping facilitate conversations in 2020 about equity, we did pre-surveys for the teachers. Like, do you think that this is worthwhile, these conversations around equity? And there was a lot of the teachers were like, yeah, yeah, it's not really a problem. You know, and they were like, there's more socioeconomic issues in this town than there are racial issues. And so when we started having the conversations, I was kind of being snarky, but posing the question, like, how much racism is too much racism? And they were like, oh, well, uh, I think you're going to use too much. And I was like, okay, well, then that, it might not be a problem for you because you're in a white body, but for the kids of color in this community, in the hallways, in the lunchroom, at recess, when you're not paying attention, that's when most of this stuff happens. And so what I realized is that, of course, there are people on all ends of the spectrum. Like, they're, the political divide in this country is crazy. So there are people who were like, this is trash. We shouldn't be spending any time on this. And then there were people that were like, you know, of course we should spend all of our time as the most important thing. But what was really interesting to me is that those people in the middle, because I had relationships with some of them, they were, you know, some of them were my kids' teachers. And so here I was like having these conversations with them. And there was this sweet old white man who was like, I never thought about it like that. I never really investigated my own bias about it. I never realized it. And so, and so these conversations, like those are the people that I wanted to have conversations with because I'm not going to do any, you know, the people on the ends of the spectrum, right, where they are. But those people in the middle that were like, oh, shit, like having these like aha moments where they were like, I never thought about it like that. But when you peel back these layers, you know, and so I think it's Michelle Obama that says like it's harder to hate people close up. Like, I think that when you start having conversations and building relationships with people and they start seeing you just as a human being and not as a black human being, but as a human being and somehow like sweeping away those differences that you have and really you're like, oh yeah, 
Like we have all these commonalities. I think that's where the part of the work is. And it's also incredibly hard to do that because you have people who are in admin positions who probably don't really have any business being in admin positions. And, you know, and you have teachers who don't really want to work with kids. You have all of these different elements and, you know, and then you have teachers who really think that racism isn't a problem, but they're still in classrooms interfacing with black and brown kids. When you think like long game, collective liberation, you know, it's probably not going to happen in our lifetimes. Maybe in yours. Maybe not. <laughs> but when I think about like changing hearts and minds, even though you're focused, Daryl, on like policy and procedure, I think that you being in this position that you are in this little white ass town is changing hearts and minds. Yeah. A lot of people have never really talked to a black man. And they've never really interfaced with black people. You're in this position where they're like, you're just a regular guy. You have family and you have the things that you care about. So I think that really like your presence is, even if the shift is minuscule, it's still like weighing closer to liberation than it is the opposite, I think. Yeah, that's, that's pretty balanced on it. Like even if I like investigate a kid for bullying or something like that, like I said it earlier, like in a, a street type way, I'm the best hitcher. <laughs> But like, no, kids, kids, like, you know, like, we focus on meaningful accountability. So what a meaningful accountability looks like is the kid to go home and play video games and like, create change. Like, you know, so, like, what, what are more creative ways that you can change hearts and minds? So I think both go hand in hand. Sustainability, you know, obviously you need people to change hearts and minds and to be more ethical and to be more inclusive and all those different things, right? But I think the, the letter of the law requires it versus the other one. It's more based off choice and someone being enlightened themselves, like the yeah. man you shared about. Yeah. That's amazing. Like he was enlightened in that way. Like, oh, I never looked at it this way. But, you know, you still have the other side of the spectrum yeah. that need to be held accountable by right. the letter. This is a debate that will continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I see both sides. And we also need to have an episode on restorative justice. I could go down that rabbit hole so easily. Thank you both very, very much for this enlightening conversation. I'm just like blown away again by both of you. Thank you so much. Oh, that was so wonderful to get to spend time with Daryl and Melissa exploring that real age old question, right? How do you create sustainable change? And we'll be going on that journey some more in our next episode with Aaron and Cherry. I hope you'll join us. We appreciate you for listening to this episode of Talk and Story. Music is provided with permission by Ben Wilson and Camilla G. Talk and Story is a project of well-organized and has enjoyed the support of the Port Townsend Arts Commission, Jefferson Community Foundation, Finn River Farm and Cidery, and the Community Equity Initiative, as well as private, in-kind, and monetary donations. If you'd like to support us, please go to well-organized.org to make a donation to the Talk and Story podcast. That's well-organized.org. Thank you.